Um, so welcome to the Port Community Church. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Justin, and I uh, just want to say a special welcome to you. If you, this is your first time with us, uh, we especially want to say we're so glad you're here with us and uh, thankful that you've chosen to be with us this Sunday morning. Um, so we're continuing in this series. Uh, we're walking through the book of Leviticus. And if, uh, if, if you haven't been here and that sounds super boring, I assure you it is not. Um, people, when people tend to think about this book in the Old Testament, um, they tend to think of it as, as, as something that uh, happened a long, long time ago and it no longer applies to you and I. Um, I used to be one of those people and I can tell you I was dead wrong, dead wrong. Um, maybe, or maybe we tend to look at uh, this book or, or any Old Testament book, very, very ancient text as uh, being something that is of ancient historical narrative um, is viewed as helpful knowledge but not much more than that um, and I can tell you that there are gospel parallels all over the place Leviticus is the third book in what we call the Torah which is the five first five books of the Bible and uh, Torah actually means law in Hebrew, which refers to the law revealed to Moses by God at Mount Sinai, uh, which is where uh, this book is written um, at, the, at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness there after the people of Israel had been released from captivity in Egypt. So the book of Leviticus at its core is the story of scripture in scripture of a holy God who loves sinful people so much that he made a way for the relationship between God and humanity to be restored and that's really important but time and again as people fail they, we fail on our end God upholds his end of the, of the covenant and we fail time and again and God continues to give humanity chance after chance after chance and God continues to do whatever possible to make the relationship work. Does that sound familiar? Anybody who's, who's been a Christian or a Christ follower long enough knows that God continues to pursue and forgive and show mercy and grace when we deny even God's existence sometimes in our own life or deny his, his presence in our lives, not his existence, but his presence, and we go about our lives in, the, in a manner that we see fit and we do what's right in our own eyes. Uh, see, there's, a, there's this clear picture of the gospel woven into this book. Um, and so many, what we would call hyperlinks to the New Testament, right, from the old to the new. Uh, so it is not an ancient book that no longer applies. I can assure you, um, it is packed full of the gospel. And so a, as we jump in this morning, I want to read a, a couple of verses that I think will provide the framework for the message this morning. And it comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And, and most of us have heard this verse or some version of it, be holy as I am holy or something to that effect. Um, can we just take a moment and pray over this? This is, when, when, we, try to, when we try to step into something this heavy and, and this, this content of Leviticus is heavy it is um, but I, I believe it, it is transformative as well 
Amen. So let's pray real quick and ask the Spirit of God to do what He does so well when we gather. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to come and to, and to look in Scripture. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Open our eyes. Open our hearts to a truth maybe that we've missed all along that's been in front of our face, God. And Jesus, be the, the core of all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen. And so we saw last week, we were in, in chapter 16, and the Israelites had just had this wonderful, long-awaited day of atonement. The day of atonement. The holiest day of the Jewish year in which all the sins of the nation were cleansed through the ritual sacrifices and offerings made in the tabernacle. And this was the day that when two unblemished goats were selected, one chosen as a burnt offering, and the other was what we call a scapegoat. And that's where we get the term from, actually, scapegoat. And which the sins of the people were transferred onto that animal and sent out into the wilderness, banished out from God's presence, right? Because obviously we know that sin can be nowhere near God. God can't be anywhere near sin. God, sin can't be anywhere near God, okay? That, and I want you to hold on to that for a second. Because, you, okay, so... We can all agree, you and I are sin, we're all sinful people in here, right? So if sin can't be anywhere near God, and we are sinful people, then, then how does that relationship work? How is that possible? Well, we'll, we'll see as we, as we dig in. And so the result of this Day of Atonement was God has provided a way for the heavy price of sin to be paid and the relationship between himself and mankind to be restored. And this morning we're diving into the back half of the book of Leviticus, starting in chapter 17. And of course, we're kind of like sprinting through like multiple chapters. I promise you we'll not read entire chapters. I promise you. This is like a, a, a 30,000 foot uh, flyover. But there's so many great truths of, uh, in, this, in this book and I, I encourage you to go and read it for yourself. And I encourage you probably to get together and do this because if you're sitting there reading the book of Leviticus by yourself, you're, go, you're probably just going, this is weird. This is just weird. Why did God make them do all these things? Why, why are these things happening? This is kind of uh, gross and, and, and graphic and detailed with the slaughtering of innocent little animals and things. I mean, it's, it's kind of, if, if we look at it from the fleshly point of view it is weird and it makes no sense but I think the graphic nature of it is because God hates sin so much and he's calling his people to hate it as well it's okay you, you and I are sinful people but we need to hate our sin we need to learn to hate it as God does and we just don't if I'm being honest I don't I don't so we're talking about the holiness of God, okay? And so and we're making a distinction here in, in 17 through 20 of what is holy and what is unholy, all right? We've talked about what is clean and unclean. We've talked about all the rituals and all the sacrifices. So what does the word holy mean? If you're thinking about the word holy, if, if you know, think about your, you know, your, if, if you grew up in the church, You've heard this word many, many times, and you have an idea of what it might mean. It might not mean quite what you think. The word here for holy is a Hebrew word called, it's quoted as 
Kodesh, which means to be set apart. Kodesh. To be set apart. To be consecrated for God's purpose. Kodesh. See, when most people think of the word holiness, we think of being morally good, right? We think of being morally good or perfect or close to it, right? That's what we think when we say, when we hear, be holy as I am holy, we think, okay, I just need to strive and climb and claw up to maybe God's place and, and maybe get as close to God. I know God knows I'm not going to get there, but maybe I just get close enough where I don't, you know, I don't cuss as much or, you know, I, you know, I don't go out and act a fool as much or, you know, I, you know, get some better friends or join a Bible study or just, just think happy thoughts and treat people good and that's pretty much what god expects of us right that's that's what he considers holy that is not the case now those are good things i mean you can't go and live like you want and call yourself a christ follower you just can't we can't i can't do that i am not allowed i'm not allowed the room if i have given my heart to christ i am not allowed the room to go do what i want say what i want when i want i'm not you forfeited your rights when you gave your heart to Jesus. I just want to make that clear. I did so at 16. And I have, I have I've weaved in and out of, of moments of really closeness to God and moments where I was really, really far away. And that's, the human, that's human nature, of course. But we just can't pass it off as an excuse to not be holy as he is holy. Correct? So the word holy, kodesh, means set apart. But the command to be holy because God is holy is much more than being morally good. It's much more than that, folks. Yes, moral purity is important and it's a part of it, but as we'll shortly see, but that's just the start of it. So for our context, holy means set apart, okay? It doesn't mean just be as good as you can be. It means to be set apart. And certainly God is set apart, amen? So that's, that's the context. That's the, 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 the ground level, the foundation is God is set apart from humanity in every way. So he is set apart, and he has set his people apart, and he, he has done so in the book of Leviticus. He says, look, you are no longer like everyone else. You, you've been marked by me. You've be, I've given you my name. I've given you my identity as a people, so live like it. All right, that's, that's the context. And of course, God wanted that from the start, a people to call his own, a peculiar people, as 1 Peter 2, 9 says, a, a people to call his own, a group of people bearing the mark in the name of Yahweh, as the Hebrews called him. So then, what does being holy as I am holy really mean? It really is all about what we call sanctification in, in the church. Sanctification. Right? We are justified by faith, and then as we move on in our journey with Christ, we are being sanctified. It is a process that we're all in. If you've given your heart to Jesus at any point, you are in the process of being made like Jesus. You might resist, you might push back, but you are in that process of being made like Christ. Being holy has a lot to do with the process of Christ's followers walk like Jesus in this world. Hopefully you find yourself in this process this morning. So because chapters 17 through 20 is such a broad scope, we can't possibly cover it all. I want to just hit a couple of quick things this morning, okay? 
And before we do that, I want to talk about, uh, give you kind of an outline that, that kind of says what these chapters are about. The first chapter, 17, that we're going to be looking at is all about the sanctity of blood. It's all about the sanctity of blood. And blood is something that we need. It is, it is, li it is life to us, and yet it grosses us out at the same time. I, 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 anybody grossed out or feel faint at the sight of blood in here? Raise your hand. Raise your finger. I'm with you. Nobody? You guys are going to be all surgeons and stuff? Yeah, like, okay, I mean, kids. I, you know, I can't do blood. Yeah, I don't do blood. Um, you know, even my own blood is kind of, you know, I don't like pass out or anything, but it just, it's just something about the sight of blood. I just kind of, uh, and may, maybe that's you. I, I know some of y'all are like, I ain't raising my hand, but I hate blood. It's all right. So chapter 17 is about the sanctity of blood. Chapter 18 is about sexual and moral purity. Man, we cannot go into all that it, this chapter holds but it's about purity, purity of heart and mind and body. And, and then chapter 19 is a review of some of the foundational commands, including the, the original 10, right? So chapter 19 is this kind of reminding, God reminding his people of what, of, of the, the original covenant he made to them, and they accepted in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And then finally, chapter 20 is about being holy. He says, look, consecrate yourselves, Separate yourselves from the rest of the world. Not like, don't go and, 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 and crawl in a cave. But no, you are set apart. You are to act, walk, look, talk different. Right? And so let's pick up in chapter 17 real quick. And starting in verse 8, 8 through 12 in chapter 17 of Leviticus. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If not, it'll be on the screen. I'm, using, I'm reading from the NIV. This is what it says. It says, say to them... Any Israelite or any foreigner living among them who offers burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, the temple, the tabernacle, to sacrifice it to the Lord, that man must be cut off from the people. Wow. Exiled. Any Israelite or any foreign person among them who eats any blood. Now, you may say, I, that's gross. Why would they even say that? I will set my face against that person. I will cut him off from the people. For the life of, the cre of, cre of a creature is its blood. The life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. And it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner among you eat blood. I'm like, why is he saying this? Well, believe it or not, there were cultures in that day and age that would drink blood of certain animals, thinking it would give them powers and certain traits and characteristics of that animal. Believe it or not, these, these civilizations would do this. And you may say, Gross, a bunch of vampires. Like, but no, that's what they did. And so God is making a distinction between them and almost every other civilization on earth at the time. Look, this blood is blood is sacred. We don't we can't live without it. 
And blood is the substance in which God atones for sin. So don't take it lightly. Don't, don't uh, spill it lightly. Don't, don't drink it. Don't eat it. Don't do any of that stuff. It is sacred. It is to be sacred in your hearts and your minds. So there, there are two commands here in, in chapter 17 I want to draw your attention to. First is the, the burnt offerings and sacrifices were to be brought into the entrance of the temple. If they were made out anywhere else, then that was a big no-no, right? And then number two, the people were forbidding from, forbidden from eating animals in which the blood was not properly drained. And they were forbidden from eating and, and drinking it. It seems like a no-brainer, but there were nations and people groups that were doing this at the time. So that, that kind of explains that, hopefully, to you. It's weird, right? But it's true. So they couldn't eat or drink the blood because of the sacred, unique nature of, of, this, of, of, of blood. Because it is life. And it is atoning for, it is atonement for sin. And, then, and secondly, and then we, we hop over to, to the beginning of chapter 18. And in chapter 18, God gives a series of laws and addresses various kinds of immorality, especially sexual immorality. And this is something, um, if it makes you squirm, I apologize, but man, it is in Scripture. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, none of us have an inside track on any of this. We we're, we're all have struggled in these areas. But, but God gives these laws on the heels of the Day of Atonement. I want, you to, I want to point that out. And so these people, the people of Israel, would see how serious these things were and absolute, the absolute necessity to live pure and holy lives. It was a necessity because of what God had done, the, the miraculous nature of atoning for sin by using the you know, the blood of animals. The blood of animals didn't have any power to it. God put it there. God put the power in that, in that uh, sacrifice to, to, to make it so. It was only by God's mercy that he did so. So in 18, he deals with sexual immorality. But also the bigger issue of that than that is being able to make the distinction between what is holy and unholy in our lives. Remember, what was holy and unholy was to be spelled out in detail for them for several reasons, but one of which is the fact that God's spirit did not dwell in the hearts of man like he does today. And so from the time of Jesus until now, God has given us his Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and to make the distinction between what is holy and unholy. So if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, he opens your eyes and heightens your senses to what is holy and unholy, amen? Like that's he is our God in that. Back then, that, that, that wasn't the case. So God had to spell it out for them in great detail. And so in chapter 18, all sorts of things are listed that God says is unholy and cannot be tolerated among his people. And so we read in the first five verses of Leviticus 18. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt. All right? Notice that. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you out from. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. By the way, when I am the Lord appears like a bajillion times in these chapters. 
He makes, God makes a statement, then he, then he follows it up with, I am the Lord. Every time, I am the Lord. Don't, don't do this, do this. Be careful, be, be wary of this. Uh, uh, take heed of this, and guess what? I am the Lord. And he keeps saying it over and over just to remind them that it is a holy God that is behind these, these, these laws. There is a holy God that has called and, and, and set apart those, that, that people group, the Israelites. And he sets you and I apart this morning. And he says, remember, I am the Lord. I'm the boss. I am the sovereign. That word Lord means sovereign, the sovereign. I am the sovereign. I am in charge of all this. And it's a good thing I am too, amen? That's what he's reminding them of. And down in uh, verse 24 of Leviticus chapter 18, turn, uh, go down a little further and it says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. The way they messed themselves up is by these behaviors. All these behaviors that are listed in chapter 18, this is how they all messed themselves up. So don't do like they did or you will suffer the same fate as them. We're not going to get into the state of our world today and, and certainly our nation and the behaviors and practices of the things and the people that we see around us. And God has set us apart from those things. And, and again, he goes down and he starts listing things and, and again, he, he finishes it up in verse 30 by saying, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. We've noted many times in this series that that the laws the Israelites were having to live by in Leviticus no longer, uh, some of them no longer apply, okay? Some of them, we know, no longer apply. But one of the few sets of laws found here in the Old Testament, especially in chapter 18, they carry over into the New Testament and they apply right up until today. I want you to know this, especially in the area of moral and sexual purity, especially in these areas. These are not things that we can pass off as ancient laws that no longer apply. We cannot ignorantly do that. We cannot. And, and I'm, we're not gonna go into it, all these, but I advise you to go back and I, I'd encourage you to read these for, your, for yourself. It's not a popular subject, I know, especially in our churches, but it's so crucial. Friends, family, it's so crucial. This is one spiritual law or set of God's standards that we can't sidestep or pass off as out of date or no longer applicable in our lives. We just can't. God still calls his people to be set apart in the areas of moral purity. And as you can see in chapter 18, it goes into very great detail, and I would recommend you go and read it for yourselves. Fair warning, it's very detailed and specific, but it gives us a window into God's heart and his desire for us to live and a walk a different way in our world. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. And all I'll say is this, let the Holy Spirit speak to you and guide you in this matter. Amen? Then we see down in Leviticus 19, I told you it's an aerial view. I told you we're like zipping through. Chapter 19, there's sort of an expounding on the original Ten Commandments and, and going into detail on how we to live our lives in, in, in these decrees. And so Leviticus 19, 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, 
the Lord your God am holy. He says it over and over and over. And here we see a direct link to 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, be holy because I am holy. That is, it's being quoted here in the New Testament. The Old Testament is being quoted in the New Testament. That, that's proof that, it's, it, that it, it still applies to us, right? We are in the New Testament age. So from Jesus onward, it applies. And certainly that applies to us. And what we see in these chapters are two incredible things that are emphasized. Two things. A call to purity and how we treat people. A call to moral purity and the way we treat people. Those are the two things that you'll see in these chapters that God really emphasizes. A call to purity, a purity of heart, a purity of speech, a purity of mind and body, and then how we treat other people. Ouch, ouch, ouch. You, none of us in this room can check those boxes completely and say, yep, I'm doing good in all those areas. You just can't. And then finally, in chapter 20, God kind of wraps it up in this section for them by saying in verse 7 and 8, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. Are, are we tired of hearing this? We ought not to be. He says it over and over for emphasis. When things are repeated in Scripture, it is because it is super important, extra super duper important. When it's repeated, it's because we, we need to hear it several times because we're, we're like, we're super dense and we don't get it once. We have to get it like seven or eight times to remember it. And so God, he knows, knowing human nature and our, our, our forgetfulness and our, our ne being neglectful, he says it over and over to, for us to get it. It's a perpetual reminder of who God is, not just actions and words. It's not just about morality on the surface, just being good for the sake of being good. No, God is giving us a glimpse into his nature, and that's what's so powerful here. If you and I have an encounter, a true encounter with the living God, we will change. The principle drives the practice, not the other way around. The principle of God's holy nature drives our behavior. It's not the other way around. It's not... We should, be, we should practice morality so that God's principles can be fulfilled in our lives or, or that God will be pleased with the way we're living. No, it doesn't work that way. This is what they were dealing with in the Old Testament. That's why it failed so many times. If it's strictly about behavior, you and I are in trouble. If it's strictly about behavior in the Christian church, we're at like every other world religion. What is the difference between the Christ follower and every other religion? It's in the reverse. The principle of God's nature sets the standard for behavior, and because God has atoned for sin, we can live holy lives. Because God has atoned for sin, we are free to live that way. Not that we're bound, we are bound to it, but we don't feel the heaviness and the weight of being bound. We are free, we feel free in that. And as God atones for sin, we, we see the mercy and grace of God pour over us and we want to live holy lives even more. If you don't want to be holy, I don't know if you know Jesus. I just don't know. There are ministers of the gospel, so to speak, standing up in the pulpit all over the world that are, 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 are trying to practice this some sort of uh, surface level my, uh, uh, morality and Jesus has nothing to do with it. If you, you know, that's not this church, I promise you. 
But if you've attended a church like that in the past, then thank God you got out. Because that's not a church. That's something else. God is holy. God is set apart from us. Yes, and you can, you, we can take the excuse that we'll never be like God. No, we'll not. We'll never be like God. No, that's not what God is asking of us. God is not asking you to be perfect like God is perfect. God is asking you to be set apart in the way you live. That's what he's asking. No, he's commanding it. He's commanding it. He's not asking you if you would like to be holy. He's saying, no, be holy because I'm holy. See, we read this verse. Some versions say, be holy as I am holy. And so, therefore, we are inclined to think that that means be like God. And that's not what it means. The the version I read, I read it specifically because it says the, the wording is a little different and we see it differently. Be holy because I am holy. Because God is all that he says he is. We, I, I want to live a holy life. I want to, I want to, and, and you know what? I'm not, if I just work hard to live holy, then it's not going to work that way. I need the Spirit's help. God, God, I need your help in this endeavor. I need you to take, in fact, I, I don't need to just need your help. I need you to take over. I need you to take over because I'm sinful. And, I, and a lot in my life is unholy. And I need you to take over. Because God is holy and because Jesus has died and atoned for and dealt with sin. In response, we are to live lives that are set apart. In response. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, let your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ let your, uh, set your hope on the grace that is brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you, have, that you had when you lived in ignorance back before you knew Jesus. Remember that? Remember that part of your life? Remember that part of your life where you might have grown up in church, but you were still kind of doing what you thought was right in your own eyes. And because you had some morality to you, because you were, you were taught the Ten Commandments and you were taught some good things in Sunday school and stuff, uh, you, you kind of knew a moral framework, but that was about it. There was, no, there was no heart change at all. There was no desire to be holy as God is holy. So we were just trying to, I remember those days. I don't know about you. And, and I was 16 when I accepted the Lord. Some of you were in your 20s and 30s, 40s even. So you, you are well aware of your pre-Jesus days. It's not pretty. We tried our best, right? But it just didn't work. Just like the people of Israel in the book of Leviticus. We tried our best and it just did not work. That's why we need a holy God to set the standard for us and then equip us to live holy lives. Amen? There's, a, there's an important nuance here that I want to point out. Holy is the only attribute of God that is on repeat in Scripture. It is a superlative. Listen to me. Holy, holy, holy. Said three times in a row. Why? For emphasis. You don't see God is love, love, love. You don't see God is mercy, mercy, mercy. You see God is holy, holy, holy. It's for emphasis. 
This is a call this morning to personal holiness, but not simply to moral goodness as best you know how. No, that's a dead-end street. It's legalism. It's about pharisaical behavior, like just trying to clean myself up from the, you know, make myself presentable. That doesn't work. That's religion. God is calling us to pursue something far greater than that. He's calling us to be holy because he is holy. Meaning, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his once and for all sacrifice there, I'm free to pursue God in all his righteousness. I'm free to gaze upon God in his nature and be astounded at what I see. To fall face down before a holy God as an unholy person and say, God, have mercy on me, right? I'm free to do that. It's not for the sake of moral goodness, but so that God's holiness will be evident in my life, even though I cannot attain his level of holiness, not on my own. God's desire for humans is to pursue his holiness and his righteousness. It's not, it has not changed from the book of Leviticus to now. God has not changed in that. God still calls us to be holy as he is holy. Holiness is the end goal for all Jesus followers here on earth. Holiness, personal holiness. And so how are you pursuing holiness in your daily life? How are you increasing in holiness? If you're, if you're, if you're falling pitifully short, then you're not alone. You're not alone. We've got a whole room full of us in here, Right? But because of God's mercy, it's a new day. It's a new day. And with a new day comes new mercies. And we are free to live holy lives because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen? That's the goal. To be set apart for God's purpose, for God's glory. Are you living a life that is set apart? See, when we encounter a holy God, our unholiness gets dealt with. It gets dealt with. Jesus came to establish a way for people to encounter God in his nature and his holiness and to be changed forever. To be holy because he is holy. To be sanctified, set apart. Are you pursuing that? Well, if not, we can start right now. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Listen to this. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Just like God's presence, God's holiness is both dangerous and good. It's both dangerous and good. We cannot waltz into God's presence and, and feign holiness and not, it not that, that consequence not be there in my life. I can't. I just can't. God wants his holiness to be evident in our lives as his people as his people, set apart. And at the same time, our lives should be lived in such a way that there's a distinction between God and us, right? He is God and I am not. So you can live a holy, set-apart life and still let people see the distinction between God and you. That doesn't mean you go and, and, and do what you want to do and say, oh, God's grace covers my sin even more. No, it means that we are pointing, our lives should be pointing to creator God and, and especially Jesus. Our lives should be pointing to that. Following Jesus for our community, to me, is all about us pursuing God's holiness in our own individual lives to the point that others see Jesus and Jesus only. 
Following Jesus for our community. Following Jesus for our community. See, the operative word there is who? Us? No. Jesus. To me, following Jesus for our community means living set-apart lives so that people see Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're, 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 we are astounded at your grace. We are astounded by the gift of your mercy. Everything in us wants, as Christ followers, to be more holy. But if we have wanted it, Lord Jesus, for ourselves and for just for the sake of our own behavior being adequate, then, Father, we're, we've missed the point. We've missed the point altogether. But so, Father, this is the times that we can resurrender. We can come to the altar. Of course, where you sit is an altar. You don't have to, we have an altar here, but we can come before you, God, and we can admit that we've done things, we, we've done what is right in our own eyes. We've done things our own way. Father, forgive us for that. Set us apart. In your name we pray. Amen.